we know that Absalom, this scripture is telling us too, that Absalom is working hard at cultivating this image so that people see him as this king. They see him as this, um, this royalty figure. And um, I think I would be fooled by him because if I'm honest... I think that's what I want my politician to look like. Like, I don't really want the guy who's, like, frumpy and, like, and says I'm a lot or like a lot, like I do, or, you know, just doesn't, just doesn't have it together. I want, I want someone who is going to look at me and look me in the eye and be able to speak well and who, like, dresses the part and wears the right clothes. Um, so I think he would fool me, too. And that's what a scripture says If you look at chapter 15, verse 6, it said, So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so that verb, stealing, means stole away. So it's like deceiving the hearts of the men of Israel. Um, And how does he do that? Uh, He does that by going to, waiting outside of the courthouse, and he's greeting the men that are coming to seek the king. And the king is like the chief justice, so when you're frustrated with the system or when you're not being heard, you would go to the king and present your injustices to him. And Absalom is meeting these men, and he's looking them in the eye, and he's listening intently, and he's hearing their complaints. And he's saying, if only I was king, then I would give you justice because you have a right cause, and you deserve justice. And so he's making these promises to them, And he's also, if you look at the way that he's greeting them, um, to kiss them, it's like, it's like the president was listening to you and hearing your claims and, um, then he gave you a hug and he left and wouldn't she feel important? Wouldn't she feel won over by him? So he's rallying, um, these men around him and he's gaining support and, in that, he also takes uh, his trip to Hebron, which is a political move. He's using religion um, to increase his power and support. And we know that because he's sending out those little messengers all around Israel to announce him as king at Hebron. Um, and we also know that, too, because he then sends for the council of Ahithophel. And so he is taking Ahithophel from David, who, and Ahithophel is one of David's great advisors, and Absalom is taking him for his purposes. So Absalom is gradually undermining and infiltrating the throne of David, and his intentions are clear. We're seeing his intentions clearly. So maybe coming from chapter 14, it's almost like, well, he's coming back home, he's coming back to reconcile relationships, but his intentions are very clear in these chapters, we're getting to see that Absalom is seeking the throne, and that that is what he wants. He wants to be king, and he wants the land. Um, so he's not just, if we look at all that he's done, he's not just a deceiver. He's not just deceiving the people. He's not just a liar. He's not just lying to his father, and he's not just a murderer. If you remember, he had um, his brother murdered. But he's against the Lord's anointed, and that's who Absalom is. These chapters show his plan to subvert God's kingdom so that he could rule over all the land. 
Um, Liam Gallagher, he's the uh, head pastor at 10th Pres in um, Philadelphia. He called Absalom the first Antichrist. So we must understand that if he is not for God's anointed, he is against God. Absalom's a deceiver like the great deceiver from Genesis. He is a snake in the garden. And it looks like he's winning. I feel like he's winning. I feel like Satan is winning sometimes. Like I look at my own family and I look at my sister and she lives um, outside of Austin and she's gay and she's pregnant and she's living with her wife and they're going to raise this baby that she's having and there's no man in that equation. And she and her partner are believing the lies of Satan, the lie that You can have this baby because you want it. The lie that men don't really matter, that they're not important and not created in God's image. And um, the lie, just those lies that you can do this on your own. But I believe that lie. I believe that lie because um, I think in my own marriage that I don't need my husband. And when we're fighting and arguing, I certainly think that he's a sinner, but I don't think that I'm a sinner, or not as bad, and so I don't think that I need him, and I don't think I need God to soften my heart so that I would forgive his one sin when I've got ten, just just like mounting, because I won't even be kind to him, I won't listen to him. Um, so that that doesn't really feel like Jesus is winning. It doesn't really feel like... God's winning in that. Um, But let's look at David. So if we look at what God is doing through David, we get to see that Absalom doesn't have the victory, that he doesn't win. And it doesn't, the story doesn't stop in chapter 15. So we know, what do we know about David? We know that he is the Lord's anointed, that he is God's chosen one. He is God's Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's not Jesus. But we know at this point in history that he is the Lord's anointed. And we see God protecting his people. We see that in chapter 15, in verse 14, when they're fleeing. We see God protecting his people from Absalom and using David to shepherd his people. That David's heart is really for God's people in this. God's people. He's really thinking about who they are, or or protecting their lives. Um, And we we see it also in um, David's compassion to Ittai. We see God's compassion in that. We see how David um, allows him to go back, and he's saying, this isn't your fight. He's actually a Philistine. You're an outsider. You don't need to stay with us. You can take your family. And Ittai is saying, responds to him, and he's saying, you're, you're the king. Ittai calls him king when others had announced Absalom as king. But Ittai is saying, you're the king. You are God's anointed, and I will follow you. And isn't that sweet that it's coming from this outsider, that God is having compassion on David and his people to encourage him through this man that has no business being the encourager. Um, and it also, we also see it, too, in the way that David rejects taking the ark with him and how um, 
he is submitting to God instead of trying to control God and use him to say like, well, but we should win because we have the ark. He's saying you can leave the ark back in Jerusalem and he's submitting to God's will and his authority. And um, God is proving that he is enough and we don't, that we can rely solely on the person of God. And lastly, we see um, God working out his purposes through Hashai um, and the way that he subverts Absalom's counsel, but also the way that that message from Hashai gets to David through the priests and their sons and how God works that out. They almost get caught. These are enemies of Absalom and coming from Jerusalem, they would... Um, they wouldn't be welcomed and people would be suspicious and they were. And so, but God protected them and he brought that message through, um, through these men to David. So it's not, it's not this small little thing that God's done. If you look at it and, and scripture said that Ahithophel's counsel was like the word of God, but God subverts this man that in, in the past was the one that um, Absalom was seeking for counsel. And so we're, we're seeing God at work, like when it feels like the enemy is winning, when it feels like it's just stacking up against God, when it's like David's got it tight, and then it's like Absalom's got all these other things, right? But um, God is still at work in this. And the last thing that we see about David that's really beautiful about these passages is that he is the Christ type, that he is the one that he mirrors Jesus in that in these passages. And we see this in the journey that he takes is like the journey that Jesus takes, the way that he um, goes across the book the brook Kidron and um, up the Mount, Mount of Olives that this is the path that Jesus took. And if you remember, when Jesus goes up the Mount of Olives, that he, this is where he prays to his Father, um, where his sweat turns into blood. Um, and much like Jesus, David is going up and he's weeping. And this is a picture of, this is a picture of where, um, of what Christ will do, what he's going through. So we see David mirroring Christ in in his service to his flock and to God in being obedient. But then it's a contrast with Christ because David is, he's lamenting and he's sad. And he's sad because of his son who's wicked. And he's sad of his heart and the sin that he's committed and the consequences that he's facing. But And he's sad for sin in general. I would assume that he's mourning just sin. But Jesus is sad for us. And Jesus is sad. And he's sad because of our sin. And he is taking the consequences of our sin. David is sad because he's seeing all of this evil worked out from his sin. But that's because David has committed that sin. Jesus didn't commit any sin, and yet he took on all of the consequences of all of our sin. So that's the contrast that we get to see, and that's the hope that we have, that it doesn't stop in chapter 15 or 16, that it keeps going, and that we're being pointed these little 
these places are like little arrows to Jesus. They're pointing us back to the king that is to come. So we see how God's human king could not do what his only son accomplished on the cross. And chapters 15 through 17 remind us of why Christ is our only hope and the great love of the Father to send us the king who is willing and able. And there's something sweet about these chapters that you almost feel like David, like he maybe he would be willing. Maybe he's finally willing, but he's not able because Chapter 11 is still part of David's story, and it's still part of our story. Sin is still part of our story. But Jesus, but it's not a part of Jesus' story, and he, he's willing and he's able. Um, so lastly, I want to talk about, so I'm kind of already talking about Jesus' victory, but I want to talk about that in terms of the church. So I talked about it personally, how it's personally hard and you can grow weary, And it feels like we're going like David, like we're walking up weeping. And the church can look like that, too. Um, Kay had us read uh, that passage in Matthew, chapter 16, verses 15 through 18, where um, Jesus tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But isn't that hard to believe sometimes? Doesn't it feel like we're struggling and it feels like the world is winning. I, I feel that sometimes like when I'm at work and one of my coworkers is coming up to me and talking to me about Fifty Shades of Grey and how it's really a good story and it's really beautiful. And it's like, I feel like the church is losing. <laughs> I feel like we're losing. Um, and maybe even Barbara kind of hit on it when she was talking about our conversations that we're having and realizing how hard it is to enter into people's lives and to be willing to be vulnerable to talk about yourself. Um, and it's hard, and sometimes even when you do try, it still feels lonely. But, um, but this isn't where our story stops. It's not here. We don't pause our life here. We know that Jesus does win, and we know the end of the story. We know that he defeats Satan. So we have to keep we have to keep that in mind and keep our struggle in perspective of that. Um, because what's great about these chapters are not the men that's in them. It's not Absalom and his perfectly constructed image. It's not David and his faithful shepherding of a flock. Rather, it's what's great in these passages is how God uses the wicked and the council to love and protect His people. Even God's consequences to David, aren't those also his love? Isn't God loving to show us the consequences of sin so that we might taste its bitterness, so that instead we might long for him? And that's why um, I attached in Christ alone to the back of um, the little handout. I really like that song. But um, just that line, no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck us from his hands, that that is true. And these chapters are showing that that is true. There is no power of hell and there is no scheme of man that's going to thwart God's plan and his rule and authority. But what's hard for us right now is that we don't get the narrator from David that's saying God ordained. So we don't know exactly how God's going to work this out in our lives. We don't know the how yet in the future of how he's going to bring us back to himself and to continue to be victorious. 
but we do get the promise that we that he will like david had the promise in 15 even though he didn't know how it was going to happen he still had the promise from god that he was god that he was god god's anointed and that god would continue to work through him and so we get to stand in jesus's victory and we get to know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church that's it. <laughs> um, does anyone want to pray and close us? That's on the spot. I can do it. Okay. Um, Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your word, that it is true, and that you are true. And thank you that you are kind, Lord, even though it doesn't always feel kind. Um, but you are kind in a way that we don't know because you're always good and you're always true. And I pray that um, that you would just continue to work out your plan, Father. And I pray that more and more we would want to submit to your will, that you would give us your spirit so that we could submit to your will. And um, just pray that you would grow us as a church. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.